Turn with me in your scriptures to a part of the nativity story that is not often mentioned. It's Matthew chapter 2, beginning of verse 13, the portion of scripture that was just read to us a few minutes ago. And this morning we're going to take a look at the physical mother of Jesus, the one who brought baby Jesus into this world, Mary, of course. And we're going to look at the happenings surrounding her life at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. And of course, then, that great escape to Egypt. Soon after the birth of Jesus Christ, tragedy struck the home. Uh, Yes, there was the amazing news shared by the shepherds. And yes, there was the magi who followed God's sign in the sky, refer to it as a star, It was not necessarily a star, but it looked like a star in the sky. And it took them directly to the house in which Jesus Christ was in. And they brought some rather valuable gifts to Jesus Christ, one that would be honoring of a king. But on Israel's throne at at that time was a client king. A client king is a king who, who rules under the patronage of another authority, uh, who rules, yes, but only to the extent that a greater government allows them to rule. And that greater government, of course, was Rome, and the king over Israel was Herod the Great. And in many ways, he did some great things in Israel, but he was not a great Jewish man by any stretch of the imagination, and certainly he was not a respected man among the Jews because he was not a great Jewish man, and he represented Rome. He acquiesced to Rome, and, well, he knew how to keep his throne. He knew that if he was going to keep his throne, he would have to bow to Rome. And what we see here is that the news of a new king, the birth of a new king, threatens his throne. And so Herod reacts quickly, he reacts secretively, and he reacts fiercely in order to keep his throne. So to better understand Mary, let's take a look at what's happening here during the great escape to Egypt, beginning at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Again, a portion of the Christmas story that we don't hear too much about, and yet it is crucial, as we'll see as we move along. After the birth of Jesus Christ, you may be surprised that Mary's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 11, Take a look at it, Matthew 2, 11. It reads this way. And going into the house, they saw the child with, with Mary, his mother, referring to the wise men. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Now, notice here, it says that they worshipped him, the baby, Jesus Christ. They did not worship her, and neither does it say they worshipped them, but rather him, Jesus alone. And then, of course, as we read earlier, verse 13, Mary is noted. An angel tells Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother, it is Mary, with you when you are to escape to Egypt. Mary is not mentioned again in the book of Matthew until 30 years later. Are you surprised? Jesus Christ is now an adult in chapter 13, And in verse 55, 
He's back in his hometown of Nazareth. That's where he grew up. And, and in teaching, this is how the people respond. Isn't he the son of Joseph the carpenter? Is not his mother called Mary? That's what the people were thinking as they listened to the adult Jesus, the 30-year-old Jesus teaching. Now, he had just finished teaching masterfully a series of spiritual truths through parables. And the public listened, and they listened. And this is how they responded. We're offended. In fact, look at what chapter 13, verse 57 reads. In regards to the people of Nazareth, the people that were listening to the fine, wonderful, great teaching of Jesus Christ, verse 15, rather, verse 57 says, and they took offense at him. They were offended. They were offended by his wisdom. They were offended by his teachings. And, and it's kind of early to take a side road from our real text, but I'm going to do it anyway. Notice here how difficult it is to decipher truth from experience. How difficult it is to decipher what is true based on what is written in the Word of God versus what is truth based on my own experiences. Jesus taught them, and they were amazed by his wisdom. They sat there and said, oh, that makes sense to me. But their experiences trumped the truth. They could not get over the fact that this was the boy they watched grow up. They could not get over the fact that their experience told them something else. We know his family. We saw him running around in the synagogue. He played with my neighbor's children. And so they rejected the truth of Jesus Christ. And instead, what did they do? They embraced what they wanted to believe. They rejected the truth because of their experience, and then they embraced whatever it is they wanted to believe. It wasn't even a matter of faith. It was a matter of reason. They could not divorce what they experienced from what Jesus was teaching. And I mention all this to you because we tend to do likewise. Maybe not so overtly, but we do likewise. Our experiences too often will dictate what is true to us. We read it in scriptures, but our experiences are different. And what do we do? Normally, generally, most people will say, well, this was my experience. The Bible must be either wrong or misinterpreted. Because my experience tells me otherwise. And we tend to believe our experiences even over what the scriptures say. And the result is that we end up believing in lies, uh, things that are not true. Uh, often we end up with spiritual convictions, with doctrine that are simply not true. My friends, experience should never tell you what God's truth is. Let God's word speak for itself. When we let what others have done or taught, and that becomes our experience, Instead of looking to the scriptures, we end up in deep theological, doctrinal, spiritual trouble. Let the Bible speak for itself. It's very able. We have to keep our fingers in the text. 
likewise, don't allow church culture, whatever the culture of the church may be. Well, this is what we did in my church. This is what we do in my church. This is what we believe. Don't let church culture dictate truth for you. Let the scriptures speak for themselves. And it is the job of the church to develop a culture that comes alongside of and embraces what the scriptures say. How often I have been told, well, you know, the church I used to go to, and they'll tell me this is what they believe, this is what they used to do. Hey, that, that's, I'm not going to go argue with them, but I can say this. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible expect of us? How should we respond? Let the scriptures speak for themselves and let the scriptures become our truth. We believe in sola scriptura. Sola Scriptura, we really believe in Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura means that the Bible alone has authority for our faith and practice. Not tradition, not culture, not some new teaching from whoever, but rather the scriptures are our sole authority. And in all honesty, it's difficult enough to abide by what the scriptures say. We certainly don't need to look outside the scriptures for more. Let's stick to what we have here. This mental block that the people of Nazareth had was so severe that if you take a look there in Matthew 13, 57, you see the conclusion of the matter. Jesus Christ responds by saying, A prophet is not welcome in his hometown or in his own household. It gives you an idea of what things were like at home. And it's not because the hometown did not want a hero. They did. The problem here was that their experiences trumped truth. What a shame that is. We tend to believe the word of God until our experiences tell us otherwise, and we conclude, well then, the Bible must be wrong, not my experience. What we want to believe eclipses God's word. Beware, beware. Let God's word dictate truth to you. Well, let, let's get back to Mary. Regarding Mary, we see in chapter 13 of Matthew, she is reintroduced back into the narrative. Um, that's after more than two decades in the life of Jesus Christ. You do see Mary mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, early on in the Gospel of Luke, beginning at verse 41, gives us an earlier episode in the life of Christ. In Matthew, we see Christ at 30. In Luke, chapter 2, we see Christ at the age of 12. At the age of 12... And there's the episode in which he is teaching the leaders in the synagogue the word of God. And, of course, they are amazed. Mary and Joseph are looking all over for Jesus for three days now. And finally, they find him. And he says, well, where did you think I would be? Not trying to be rude, just talking to his parents. Well, you should have known I'd be here. John also records Mary. Um, and he records Mary for the first time early in the ministry of Christ. So again, Mary uh, is with Christ, but Jesus is at the age of around 30 years. It's recorded very early in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and that is at the wedding in Cana. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. 
And Mark mentions Mary only two times. Are you surprised? The second time is in chapter 6, verse 3, and it's the same teaching that we see in Matthew 13 about Jesus Christ teaching in Nazareth, and the people don't want to receive what he's teaching, and he concludes a prophet is not welcome in his own home. But we see Mary also in Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 31. And look at what we see recorded about Mary in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 3, beginning at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called to him, that is Jesus. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he, Jesus, answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around them, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So it gives you a little more insight into who Mary is. Well, so far we have seen that Mary plays a crucial part in the life of Christ. She bears Christ. She gives birth to Jesus Christ. But you'll notice in these texts that Mary is not deified. She is not crowned as a co-redemptress, which is a role she's taken on in certain circles today. You'll notice, too, that she is not sinless or immaculate, as some would refer to her. She is not a perpetual virgin, and she does not have a treasury of merit from which we can draw from. All those are teachings that come through tradition, not the Bible. Far from the scriptures, actually. Back to Matthew chapter 2. Here, Mary has to flee by night to another country. Can you imagine how difficult that must have been for her? Imagine the fear. Imagine the hurry. I do wonder how Joseph broke it to her. Having woken up from the dream, wakes her up and says, Mary, I just had a dream. I wonder how she responded. Maybe Mary did say, I believe you, Joe. Let's get going. I'll get the baby ready. Maybe. But knowing human nature and knowing a little bit about Mary and Joseph, I'm going to guess that Mary woke up and said, what? Are you sure? Egypt, Joe, why Egypt? And how are we going to get there? Travel by night? Is it safe? It's probably what Mary said. It's probably what most of us would say. And Mary was very human, just like us. Well, it must have been a harrowing experience. Keep in mind that they're not running to save their own lives. They're running to save the life of their baby. They want to take care of this baby. And not only because it is their baby, their precious little baby, but because a promise comes with this baby that he will be the king and he will rule forever and ever and ever. So they certainly want to save this baby. Take a look at what we see in Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2, we see the crossroads between faith 
and practice. Here the two come together. A person's faith and how a person lives. Luke chapter 1 and verse 32. Faith and practice meet. It reads this way. This is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. And he says, he, this baby that's going to be born to you, that you don't even know is in your womb, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will and of his kingdom there will be no end. These are significant promises. And now Mary is going to have to act on these words. Now notice that Mary does not say, Joe, 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 you know what Gabriel said. Nothing's going to happen to the baby. I need to get a little more sleep. It was a rough day. She doesn't just cross her arms and just sit back and say, well, God's got this. He's going to take care of this. No, Mary has to act on the words of God. Not in order to help God, no, but in order to carry out the will of God. Mary has to act on the words of God in order to carry out the will of God. Because if Herod gets there first, in human terms, if Herod gets there first, Christ's reign is going to end abruptly. He will not reign forever. What I want you to see here where faith and practice come together, is that God weaves his promises with our actions. He takes his word, his promises, and he takes your actions, and he weaves them together, as only he can, in order to fulfill his purpose. Now, he doesn't need to do that. He could do with you like he did to Jonah, and make you do whatever he wants you to do. But more often, God says, here is my purpose, and I call on you to carry out my will, willingly, to fulfill my purposes. He will have his way. Jonah proved it. My life proves it. I think yours does too, if you keep looking. Faith, my friends, is active. And prayers are as well. Prayer is essential. God weaves his purpose and his promises with our actions so as to accomplish his will. God will use his very people to carry out his will in order to accomplish his purposes. Are you being used by God? What a wonderful New Year's resolution that would be. No? Oh, Lord, may you use my actions to fulfill your purposes. Make that your number one priority in 2024. Well, they have to run to Egypt, the journey to Egypt. The Bible does not give us details other than to say that they got there. Uh, there are essentially two ways they could have gotten there. One is by crossing the Red Sea to a foreign land, a pagan land, by the way, a country where the Jewish people had escaped from centuries earlier. 
Now, they could have gone this way. They could have taken a 40-mile hike to the port of Jaffa and then taken a two-day sailing trip to the port of Alexandria in Egypt. Why do I say Alexandria? The Bible does not say that. But he was a, te uh, a tecton, which is a, um, a craftsman, an artisan. Um, usually it's translated as a carpenter, but a tecton could also be a metal worker or a stone worker, a mason. That's what Joseph was. And so it would make sense that he would go to a big city where he would find work. We can't say for sure. But it would take a, two days for him to get there by boat. And of course, the gifts given to them by the Magi would have paid more than paid for this trip. Or he could have, they could have gone the long way and walked across to Egypt, and that would have taken about two months. We don't know what they chose to do, but they got there. You'll notice at verse 13 in Matthew chapter 2 that Joseph is given very clear instructions. In fact, he's given five commands by an angel. We don't know if it's Gabriel or not. and Actually, it really doesn't matter, but it's the angel from the Lord gives him five commands and says, rise. That is, get up. Uh, this is during a dream, so it suggests that uh, this was at nighttime, that he was sleeping at night. I don't think he was taking a nap on the couch. Rise, get up. That's first command. Number two, take the child. That would be Jesus. Number three, take his mother. That would be Mary. And flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you otherwise. Which, of course, then is a promise that this angel is going to visit Joseph once again. And that does happen in the year 4 AD. That's the year when Herod the Great dies. And it's about 75 years old at the time. And it's recorded for us in chapter 2, verse, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And so Joseph takes Mary and the baby, and they return. And in doing so, they fulfill prophecy. How do we know? How do we know that Jesus here is fulfilling prophecy? Well, the gospel tells us so. Look at verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The prophecy was first recorded in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea 11, 1. And it reads this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's an interesting prophecy because it's, if you were to read it, you would say there's nothing there about the Messiah. There's nothing there about Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to read the entire chapter, you see it's about the past history of Israel and the future of Israel uh, before they are overtaken by enemy nations. So how does this fulfill the prophecy of Jesus Christ? It's almost as if Matthew is just saying, hey, this looks pretty good. I'm just going to throw this in here and say it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But no, that's not what Matthew's doing. Matthew's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So how would we make this connection 
between what Hosea is saying and what Jesus Christ is doing. I don't think that even Hosea was making that connection. I'll have to ask him in heaven. I don't think any of us here reading Hosea 11.1 would have guessed. In fact, a friend of mine was just preaching on Hosea. And he did not see the Messianic passage there. I don't think any of us would, had it not be pointed out here in Matthew. It does show to you how difficult it is to interpret prophecy, isn't it? I'm always troubled by people who read through the scripture and say, well, this means this, and this means that, this means this, this means that. That means Jesus Christ is coming in two years. <laughs> it is very difficult to interpret prophecy. And prophecy, if God wanted us to know exactly, he would have told us clearly. Prophecy is a neon light saying, watch out, it's coming, it's coming. You don't know when, but it's in that direction, it's coming, it's coming. What he wants us to know, he will tell us. The Bible is God's revelation. It's not a book that needs to be deciphered. So how do we understand this Hosea 11.1 text? How do we know that it's messianic? Well, there is here a deeper meaning than what most of us would have noticed in this passage. A deeper meaning to this passage. It's what... Theologians often refer to as the census planior. Just as God, as he led his people out of Egypt, established the old covenant, now God is going to lead Jesus Christ out of Egypt in establishing the new covenant. Out of Egypt, I will take my son. Again and again and again, what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a comparison. The events of the Old Testament are a finger pointing to Jesus Christ. Many times over, we call this, by the way, theologically, typology or types of Christ. Things in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ. I'll give you a few examples. The categories in which Eve was tempted are the same categories in which Christ was tempted. What's the difference? Eve failed, Christ did not. Take another example would be the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. These were pictures of Jesus Christ. Pictures of Jesus Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ. And of course, now we see that even the Exodus out of Egypt is a picture of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament without the New Testament is like a house without a roof. In order for the scriptures, that house to be complete, you need both testaments. The Old Testament without the New Testament is a house without a roof. But one Jewish Christian said that the New Testament without the Old Testament is a roof without a house. And as born-again believers, so often we have the roof, but we forget the house. We need both, the roof and the house. Christ was somewhere between the ages of two and the newborn when um, 
when he has to flee to Egypt. Uh, and why do I say that? Well, if you look at chapter 2, beginning at verse 16 through 18, we see that Herod, King Herod slaughters all two-year-olds and younger in the city of Bethlehem and within that region which tells us that when the Magi did get to the house of Jesus Christ, he was not necessarily a baby in a manger, but rather, possibly, likely, he was a toddler running around the house saying, why? 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 As the two-year-olds normally do. And what happens here, at chapter 2, verse 16, Herod slaughters all the two-year-olds. Why? And under, why? Because he is afraid that this king is going to grow up and take his throne. Uh, historically, we call this the massacre of the innocents. And what I find amazing is that right here at the very beginning of the life of Jesus Christ, when he's just a babe, it begins the commotion around Jesus Christ. The historical commotion that Jesus Christ brings into this world. And it has not yet ended, and it never will. Jesus Christ is the pivotal individual in world history. Everything moves according to that reality and all the commotion that comes with it points back to Jesus Christ because of his reality, because of his truth, because of what he was teaching in Nazareth. It was true. It was true. I've been listening to a podcast uh, regularly, and he ends the podcast with these words. He says, and those rumors of grace and redemption, they're all true. Don't worry. Everything is going to be fine. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Those rumors are true. But because not everybody accepts it, there's the great commotion around Jesus Christ, which does bring a little, a little consternation as to what in the world the angels were saying in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and on earth peace. Peace on earth. Isn't that what the angels say? Isn't that what our Christmas cards say? No, the Charlie Brown cartoon got it right because they read the whole text. And whenever we hear those words, peace on earth, make sure you get the rest of the verse as well. The old King James puts it this way, and goodwill towards men. They simplified it. In the old English, it's rather simplified. Your modern translations are better. It reads this way, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth, not to everybody, but to those with whom God is pleased to extend his peace. Peace on earth to them. We don't know how long Jesus Christ was in Egypt. Um, calculations of how long he was there depends on what year Jesus Christ was born. And we don't know what year he was born. We do know when Herod died, that was 4 AD. So we know when he went back to Israel, but we don't know when he left for Egypt. So I'm going to say, and I think it's fair to say, that Jesus Christ was anywhere from four years old to seven years old when Joseph chose to go back to Nazareth. Somewhere between four and seven. 
Uh, notice here, verse 19, that Joseph does not ignore what the angel tells him. But he was afraid. He was afraid to go back when he, under, when he understood uh, that Herod's son, uh, Archelaus, was still there, and he was afraid of what this new king would do, this uh, governor, more so, would be doing. And so, having been warned in a dream, instead he goes back to the city where he was from, the city of Nazareth, an insignificant city. And what we see at the very end of chapter 2 is that by going back to Nazareth, guess what? Jesus Christ fulfills another prophecy. Chapter 2, verse 23, look at what it says. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. He would be called a Nazarene. But here's a little surprise to you. Absolutely nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ, would be called a Nazarene. So where's Matthew coming from now? There is no prophecy that says, hey, there's the Nazarene. There's no such prophecy. But what I do want you to see here is that the prophecy is indeed fulfilled because, uh, because this is what the Bible does say. It speaks about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, being of humble, unimportant, insignificant pedigree. That where he's from and who he is, his background is of no significance whatsoever. And that is to say that Jesus Christ did not come from Beverly Hills. He did not have a posh penthouse on Park Avenue. In fact, Nazareth was such an insignificant city, insignificant little town, that his very disciple Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a despised little town. In that region, 50 miles from Jerusalem, were some significant cities. For example, Hebron, Shiloh, Gibeon, Bethel. Nazareth was a small and obscure town never even mentioned in the Old Testament. But all these bigger towns, cities, were passed up, and instead, Nazareth was chosen. J.C. Ryle writes, this was humility. You see, by going to Nazareth, prophecy is being fulfilled because Nazareth was an insignificant, derided little town. And anybody who came from Nazareth was, who needs him? Get away from me. You're a nobody. To be called a Nazarene was not a compliment. If somebody called you a Nazarene, you would put your head down and walk away. And so when the Bible says that prophecy was being fulfilled, that Jesus was called a Nazarene, it was speaking about how he would be ridiculed, how he would be despised. That's exactly what Isaiah 53 talks about, about how Christ was despised. And there was nothing in him that would make us attracted to him. Not his physical features, not his background, not his home, a Nazarene. But as we move through this text here, through all these details in regards to the uh, 
birth and then the escape to, to, to Egypt, uh, we're still wondering, why was Mary chosen? Of all people, why Mary? Why did God choose Mary? Well, the Bible does not tell us why Mary was chosen. Why did he choose you to be his own? The Bible doesn't tell us. But we thank the Lord for it. But what we do know, based on the descriptions we do have of Mary in the Gospels, not in tradition, not extra biblical writings, no, in the scriptures, what we do know of Mary is that most likely she was young. Why do we say that? Well, one, she was not married, and two, she was a virgin. In that culture, it was very common to get married at the age of 15. Here we have a young lady, unmarried, likely to be in her teens. And I would say she probably did not wear blue all the time, as we see in the pictures. <laughs> we also know, based on what we see in the scriptures, that she was not perfect the scriptures never describe Mary as a perfect person or much less a divine person. Her natural birth would ensure that she was not perfect and that she was not sinless. There was no Holy Spirit intervention in her, uh, 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 in her as there was in the conception of Christ. In fact, the Bible even tells us her father's name. But notice also, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see her imperfection, not because of a sinfulness in her, but we see her humanity, her imperfection. In John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus Christ is hanging on a cross, he looks to John, the disciple, and he says, behold your mother. In other words, take care of Mary. And then she looks, he looks to Mary and says, behold your son. In other words, he'll take care of you. If Mary was an adult divine, an adult person who was in any way uh, to be worshipped, she would not need somebody else's care. But we see her lack of perfection mostly in the Gospel of John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. There Mary did not understand who her son was and she did not understand what her son was to do. And Jesus Christ looks to her and pretty much tells her just that in John chapter 2, verse 4. Mom, you don't know what you're talking about. So it goes to show you how purely and simply human she was. We also know about Mary is that God chose her and that whatever God does is right. So it was a good thing that he chose her because God never does anything that is wrong. There's no need to question him. Now, what God does is not always understandable, but he will fulfill his plan, and he'll never do what is wrong in a process. And he will weave your actions with his purpose in order to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. That's what he did with Mary. We also know that Mary was favored by God. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel said, O favored one, the Lord is with you. O favored one. Mary, you're favored. Her relative Elizabeth said, Blessed are you among women. Same chapter of Luke, verse 42. Now that expression there, favored one, means to go after with grace. Only a sinner needs grace. To go after with grace and to bless you. 
That's what it means to be favored. Mary was favored. We also know that Mary was very willing and she was very obedient. Again, Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Mary said to the angel, says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Did you get that? I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm a servant of the Lord. Mary's willingness to be obedient to God was here an opportunity for her to make a way for the Messiah to enter the world. She would have to die to herself in order to bring the Savior into the world. She would die to herself in order that salvation would be made available to many. She would have to trust God. Joseph sure did pick the right girl to marry. No question about it. My friends, being in God's service is not a death to your dreams and your aspirations. So many people fear being in service of God, to, uh, of God because all my dreams are going to be dashed away. No, 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 no. Being in the service of God is not a death to your dreams or your aspirations. Rather, it is your faith in practice. It is allowing God to weave your life along with his plans. It is simply replacing an inferior, self-seeking dream with a greater, a superior, a far superior aspiration. Aspirations that will affect eternity when you're in God's service. Aspirations that will be recounted in heaven. They will talk about these events in heaven. Aspirations that have significance beyond just ourselves, but rather touching the kingdom of God throughout. That's an aspiration. Aspirations that will land in the lap of God. And he'll weave your aspirations with his purposes. Serving God means that you are content in letting God be God over your life. Because Mary knew God, she could trust him. And because she knew him, she trusted him, and she found pleasure even when life did not go as expected. And I assure you, life did not go as expected for Mary. And yet she trusted. Her contentment came in the reality that she was serving an all-knowing God whose purpose will forever stand. Our satisfaction is in knowing that while we serve God through good times as well as bad times, his will is being carried out. There's our contentment. And we are being used then to further the kingdom of the Almighty God, to further the kingdom of God, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father of whose reign there is no end. Let this new year be just that for you, that you would find your contentment in serving God through high waters or low, thick or thin, whatever it may be, say, Lord, 
weave my life into your purpose that you would be glorified and your will would be done. Mary was indeed blessed beyond any other person. But listen, let's fight for second place. Let's fight to live a life that God's blessings are so evident, so obvious. Why? Because my heart is to know him, to serve him, to love him, to honor him, to pursue him, to extol him as I wait for him. That can be this year for you. I pray it will be.